Welcome to Live Yes with Arthritis from the Arthritis Foundation. You may have arthritis, but it doesn't have you. Here, you'll learn things that can help you improve your life and turn no into yes. This podcast is part of the Live Yes Arthritis Network, a growing community of people like you who really care about conquering arthritis once and for all. Our hosts are our arthritis patients, Rebecca and Julie. Listen in. Welcome to the Live Yes with Arthritis podcast. I'm Rebecca, an occupational therapist living with rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm Julie, a JA patient who's passionate about making sure all patients have a voice. Chronic pain is a part of all of our lives. Whether we're flaring or we're not, we're always conscious of that monster that is sitting on our back (laughs) waiting to rear its ugly head. Today, we're talking about the science of chronic pain and the brain-pain connection. Today, we're talking with the expert, Dr. Wesley Gillum. He's a pain psychologist and the clinical director of the Mayo Pain Clinic and is board certified in clinical psychology. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Gillum. Well, thank you for having me. So to kick us off, let's just get down to business. What is going on in the body when we do experience chronic pain? How does chronic pain work? How does the chronic pain system kind of hijack a person's nervous system? I think some important things for people to to keep in mind, and, and these are sort of counterintuitive points, frankly, and so that's why I think it's important to start with it. Whether we're talking about acute pain or we're talking about chronic pain, the experience of pain is being generated, it's being modulated exclusively in the brain. It really is a brain process, and that's often unusual to patients that are first being introduced to the idea of how to better manage chronic pain. I really want to be careful here as a psychologist and making a really clear distinction to say that pain is a byproduct of the brain is not to say it's all in somebody's head. Another really important point, too, is that the severity of somebody's pain is often a very poor marker for the amount of tissue damage that actually exists in their body. Mm. There are often cases where you will have people who have very, very minimal tissue damage that we can detect, yet they're reporting very pronounced pain. And there are cases where folks who have very clear abnormalities in their body that should hurt, and they're just simply not reporting any pain at all. So those two points, I think, are important to make, and they really speak to the complexity of what chronic pain really is. So let's dig into that first point first. When you said that pain is a byproduct of what happens in your brain, but that pain is not all in someone's head, Can we explain that a little bit more about what the mental health and pain connection might be um, and how we can navigate that as patients? Absolutely. When someone has a pain somewhere in their body, there is sensory information that's traveling from their body. It goes up to their spinal cord and it's processed in the brain. Now, that sensory information in and of itself is not pain. It's nothing more than uh, like a danger signal. It's a warning signal. It's an indication that there could be something wrong and that needs to be further processed by the brain. Once it reaches the level of the brain, it gets evaluated in multiple areas of the brain. So that signal is going to be interpreted at sensory centers of the brain. That signal is going to be interpreted in thought centers of the brain. It's going to be interpreted in emotional centers of the brain. 
Now, when you think about all of those structures in the brain that are responsible for the experience of pain, those are some of the very same structures that are very active in the context of a lot of emotional problems like chronic depression, anxiety disorder, substance abuse. That's a great explanation. It's, it almost sounds as though you're saying that pain is, when it comes to the brain, it's kind of like the biology of pain happens in the brain. But there's also this kind of mental health component that's separate from that. Emotional states are, are generated in the brain as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. The emotional states are often a byproduct of poorly managed pain. So depressive symptoms, anxiety tends to come as a result of people struggle with pain and the functional limitations that come along with it. So emotional states really can amplify pain over the course of time. They don't necessarily cause it initially, but they become a player over the course of time as pain sets in and is having more and more of an influence on people's day-to-day functioning. I, I, I use the metaphor, it's almost like a volume knob on your car radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Somebody, does that, if that makes sense. Yeah. If, yeah. If somebody is hurting and they are profoundly depressed in the context of their pain, they're going to hurt more. I've talked to a lot of patients and one of the most resounding things that they've said is if you're experiencing chronic pain and you're not seeing some uh, psychotherapist or a therapist to combat some of those mental health areas that are of concern, then you're not fully managing your chronic pain and making sure you can, so to speak, turn the volume down on that car knob, right? There's about 100 million American citizens with chronic pain, and there is a vast majority of them that are actually functioning reasonably well. I wouldn't say that every person that has chronic pain necessarily needs to work with a psychologist or a mental health provider. I would say there's a subset of them for whom that would be particularly important and it would be a really critical component of their treatment. The problem is when folks are hurting chronically, they often can respond to their chronic symptoms as if they are acute. And the response to chronic pain needs to be much, much different than one would respond to acute pain. And what would that look like? So let me give you an example. Number of years ago, I had injured my elbow. I was running with my dog and my dog cut in front of me and I got tangled up in the leash and I fell on the sidewalk and I uh, had a hairline fracture in my elbow. I didn't know it at the time that I fell. About an hour later when I got home um, was when this cascade of changes started to happen for me that that were quite unpleasant. The first thing I noticed is that I got a ton of swelling in the joint. And with that swelling came also some hypersensitivity around the elbow. I had a zone from about the middle of my bicep to the middle of my forearm that was completely hypersensitive. If anything got anywhere near it, I was jumping through the ceiling in pain. As these physiological changes were happening, I started to become very cognitively aware of my elbow. I became preoccupied with my elbow and preventing anything from coming anywhere near it. I became a bit anxious, as you can imagine, because it was so uncomfortable. And eventually, all of these circumstances that happened motivated me then to go to the hospital, to the emergency room, to get medical treatment. That is a cascade of events that happened. Every single thing that I described there that happened to my elbow, from the swelling in the joint to the anxiety that I was feeling over the course of the time, was being driven by my brain's response to an injury. After a period of time, the injury healed, the pain went away, and I went back to normal functioning. 
Now, what's happening in some cases in chronic pain is that people's responses to their symptoms are very consistent with the response I described of an acute injury. And with chronic pain, that type of a response is completely maladaptive, albeit understandable. People become very hypervigilant about their symptoms. They become very anxious about what these symptoms mean. I would argue those responses are as big a contributor to their functional limitations as the actual pain itself. So let's talk a little bit about healthy responses to chronic pain. What would you say is the ideal scenario? The best thing that we can do as healthcare providers is try to calm people's responses down to these really profound symptoms that they're having. If somebody has chronic pain and it's uncomfortable to move, it doesn't mean that movement is something that should be avoided and not performed. It's the avoidance of the movement that's actually what's promoting ongoing functional limitations in people. We are conducting a ongoing study called the Live Yes Insights Assessment, and we just are getting information back on the data from last year, and 100% of people who responded out of 18,000 assessments said that they reported pain in the last seven days on average of five on a 10-point scale. Is that information that you think with this community of people with arthritis is surprising to you? An average level of five out of 10? An average level of five out of 10 in the last seven days. What they said a five meant is moderately strong pain. It can't be ignored for more than a few minutes, but with effort, you still can manage to work or participate in some social activities. It doesn't surprise me. So what are some of the questions that you would ask a patient to understand what that pain number means? One of the first questions that I always ask somebody with pain is to walk me through your day. They can range as severely as I'll hear people tell me that they feel like their pain is, is killing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a pretty pronounced perspective of pain. It's an appraisal process. And that in and of itself tells me this is somebody that's really struggling. And that would be actually one of the first things I would want to target is how do we help somebody think about this differently? When you're going into a doctor's office to describe what pain feels like, it's really hard to put it into words when you're feeling miserable because your joints are flaring and stiff and hot and angry. What are some tips that you might give a patient to encourage them to share those day to day? What does this look like in their healthcare provider setting? We actually encourage patients to become less focused on describing their symptoms and more focused on what it is that they want to be get back to doing and then developing a treatment plan for that. Acknowledging that there are obviously limitations that come with the symptoms that they're experiencing, but the more focused on the symptoms one becomes, the more entrenched they become in it sometimes. I know there's programs that Mayo have that help people regain control over their pain and and live their lives and all kinds of programs out there to help with that pain management is you know, how do those types of things help people? What we focus in on is less on reducing symptoms in order to facilitate engagement in life, but rather to begin talking about how do we get you more engaged in the things in life that bring you value. Even if you're not confident you can do it, that's got to be the starting point. That's when we start to see people make real functional gains. We're asking people to lean into things that are scary and that in the past have caused them to have symptom escalation in an effort to calm their nervous system down and actually reduce their symptoms and improve their functioning. 
Yeah, if we actually we're talking about leaning into feelings. What are some of the top three things maybe that you could tell us that someone with chronic pain can do to regain control of their life? Well, that's a really good question. I think the first thing to regaining control over pain symptoms is to begin to recognize or to help people begin to recognize that there are a lot of different variables that are contributing to their experience with pain. The first I would say would be to slowly and gradually begin to reintegrate activity into your life. Right? If you've been overly sedentary for a long period of time because you're hurting, it's understandable that you're doing that. But maybe in collaboration with a healthcare provider, start to develop a plan for integrating more movement into your day. Okay. So definitely getting moving more. We need to help people start to manage their emotional state in the context of their pain better as well. And that is more engagement with the psychological components of chronic pain that are very real and they're exacerbating things. So managing emotional state would be one other thing I would recommend people do. And then to start working with family members on how to modify the environment a little bit to promote functioning. Often family members' responses to people's pain can influence their level of functioning. That definitely plays a huge role, doesn't it? I think it helps when you have, when everybody around you knows that you need some support because yep. you're having more pain uh, that can help give you the opportunity to rest or, or do something to help alleviate your pain. The three things that you recommend are to find movement. So to kind of foster some physical health, to engage with your psychology, to maintain your mental health and emotional health, and then to work with your family and get connected. And all three of those things are what we pride ourselves on when we talk about the Live Yes Arthritis Network and our insights program where we're trying to learn from patients and have patient-driven programs and change with the Arthritis Foundation. If you're struggling with chronic pain and those are three recommendations that you're interested in, come and join us in the Live Yes Arthritis Network because we've got lots of resources available and programs for you. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about too, Dr. Gillum, is fibromyalgia. A lot of people with fibromyalgia, uh, which some people don't know, it falls under the umbrella of arthritis and rheumatic conditions. And a lot of people with fibromyalgia have this chronic pain that is just unbearable. And People with osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis or gout or lupus often will have that secondary diagnosis. Can you talk about that fibromyalgia type of chronic pain? It's coming from the brain. It's coming from the spinal cord. Many folks who have fibromyalgia do not have any clear pain generator in their body. There is not necessarily any tissue damage to account for why they're feeling this very diffuse pain over multiple areas of their body. And the reason that they're not feeling it is it's being generated in their brain. And so one of the treatment approaches that can effectively work with fibromyalgia is to work on the nervous system and calm the nervous system's response down to the information that it's getting. You do that through promotion of gradual integration of increasingly more intensive exercise while simultaneously treating a lot of the depression and anxiety that amplifies the experience of fibromyalgia in folks. It's a tough condition because many of them feel as if they're being told there's nothing wrong with them. The changes are happening at the level of the brain, not in the body. When you have that uncontrolled pain, that makes you more hypersensitive, right? 
Well, it does make you more hypersensitive. And when you don't have a clear explanation for why you're feeling what you're feeling, that in and of itself is very anxiety provoking and it exacerbates things. Yeah, that's exactly right. I am actually someone who has a secondary condition with fibromyalgia. And I remember when I was first talking with my healthcare providers about it, it was a very disorienting and scary experience because none of my blood work said, oh yeah, this is fibromyalgia. None of my x-rays showed tissue damage that was like, oh, uh this is what this means. It almost felt like we don't really know what's going on here. So we're going to call it fibromyalgia and you're just going to have pain and you're going to have to figure out how to live with it. And it can feel invalidating as well. Right. You hear somebody saying you're hurting. We're not quite sure why you are. And we, we hear a lot of stories of patients with fibromyalgia who leave healthcare feeling as if they've been told that there's something wrong with you because there's no reason for you to be feeling this way. That in and of itself is as much a contributor to people's functional limitations as anything. Dr. Gillum, can you explain a little bit more about what it is to be treated by a pain psychologist? A lot of our listeners are seeing rheumatologists and physical therapists and occupational therapists, but maybe not pain psychologists. Good pain psychology is very squarely rooted in science, and it's got a lot of evidence to be a relatively effective treatment by itself for chronic pain, but also in the context of other more intensive programs like a multidisciplinary or an interdisciplinary rehab program. At the core of pain psychology is modifying how people are responding to their symptoms because people's interpretations, their subsequent behavioral responses to their pain are often what contribute to disability in people long-term. It's not that somebody's doing something deliberately to not be active, but those, those behavioral patterns that folks fall into over long, long periods of time as they're struggling to feel better, they become as impactful on functioning as the actual pain condition itself. So we're working to help people modify how they're responding to a chronic symptom in order to promote improved functioning and quality of life. And that's a lot of really, really hard work. Yeah, it's a process. It's not right. It's not an easy fix. It's a, it's a long time process. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's not a, a simple single, take this pill and you'll be all better. It's a modify your life and feel relief in all of these different ways. And that can be a hard, a hard pill to swallow, so to speak. <laughs> There's no question. And it's, it's desirable to get instantaneous results. And if we can take something that's going to immediately make us feel better, that anybody would prefer that. But unfortunately, that is often not how it works with chronic pain. And so putting in the time and the real work that comes with making behavioral change gives people the best chance to be successful long term. What is an average amount of time that a patient might expect to put in work before they start seeing some of the benefits of what they're doing? I wouldn't necessarily want to put a time frame on it. I would argue that the work is a lifelong effort, that you can see some improvements pretty quickly if you're consistently, systematically sticking with your treatment plan of activity and mood management. I think what would be important to keep in mind for anybody that's looking to do this is that initially there will be some discomfort in this process to not let that deter you, to not let that demoralize you, that some of the discomfort that comes with increasing your activity level is to be expected. Within a few days after the discomfort, you can expect to see some improvement in a lot of different areas. 
Your insights into what it's like living with arthritis can make a life-changing difference for yourself and others. Help choose topics for future podcast episodes and change the future of arthritis resources and research. Take just a few minutes to make a change. Arthritis.org slash insights. I wonder, is there a particular type of patient that you think is the ideal patient to seek out pain psychotherapy? I think if somebody's still functioning relatively well with their pain, I might not recommend it immediately. I think the folks that have what we call high-impact chronic pain, so there's roughly 5% of the U.S. population have high-impact chronic pain. These are folks that are experiencing really significant decrement, pain-related decrement in their social, their occupational functioning. They're just simply not functioning at a level that's sufficient to them. I think these are likely folks that would benefit from working with a pain psychologist because when it gets to that point, it's often the case that the mood and the anxiety issues are now contributing to pain in a really pronounced way and they need to be addressed. Right. That's not to say that somebody that's functioning reasonably well couldn't benefit from pain psychology. There could be some approaches that we can offer to somebody that can actually buffer them from going down that road into high impact chronic pain, almost like a preventative care kind of a model. So it just kind of depends on the presentation of the person. What are some tools that you might suggest to the general population, not pain psychology necessarily, but some of the things that they can do to mitigate those risks? Consistent, regular exercise routine. Mm-hmm. Consistent daily exercise with the supervision of your primary care provider is always the first thing that I recommend that can enhance mood just by simply moving is an antidepressant in and of itself. Promoting movement and activity is always the first thing to do. It's so counterintuitive to want to move your body when you're in pain. Is there something you can suggest to people? How do they get over that hump to do it? Start small. Uh, For some who are really deconditioned, They haven't been active for long periods of time. It could be something as simple as taking a walk to the end of the block and back. If that's too much for somebody, it could be walking to the mailbox and back a couple times a day, just gradually, slowly ramping that up over the course of time. There's no value in somebody that hasn't been moving much for a long period of time. There's no value in pushing yourself to a point where you crash. That's going to zap any motivation that anybody has to do much of anything. Starting low, I would rather undershoot it, have somebody be successful and build confidence that way, then challenge somebody with too strenuous a regimen, have them be unsuccessful and then not want to pursue it again. Yeah, so start low, go slow, mm-hmm. right? You might buddy up with a family member, take a walk with someone. Take a walk with your dog. Yeah. <laughs> a walk with your spouse, which can promote accountability. Having somebody to talk to while you're walking, mm-hmm. right? If you're engaged with somebody that you care about while you're walking, it may distract you from any symptom you might have. You may actually walk further than you thought you were able to because you were focused on something other than the pain. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> and it's safe to move. It's good yes. for you. Yeah. You just touched on something really important. It's safe to move when you have pain. Pain may indicate hurt, but it doesn't mean harm. 
a little bit of hurt early on can promote functioning long-term, but that doesn't mean you're harming yourself. Oh, that is such an important piece of advice. You said that the first thing that you would recommend is exercise and physical activity. Are there other things that you would recommend for people to manage pain? Well, I think keeping realistic expectations. It's not unusual for people when they start getting on this plan to want to have instantaneous improvements and to push themselves a little bit too far. So having some realistic expectations about progress, not putting too much pressure on yourself to go too far too quickly, staying realistic goals will be really important as you meet goals that promotes confidence, which promotes improved functioning. And I would say just staying in tune with your emotional states and your mood and your anxiety levels. If you manage those things better, that will interact with your physical activity and just promote your functioning even more. Great. Those are some really good takeaways. Thank you so much, Dr. Gillum, for joining us today. I think it's really important for people to understand chronic pain and how we can manage and deal with it. So we appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed being with you. This Live Yes with Arthritis podcast was brought to you by the trusted experts of the Arthritis Foundation. We're bringing together leaders in the arthritis community to help you make a difference in your own life in ways that make sense. You may have arthritis, but it doesn't have you. The Arthritis Foundation would like to thank Janssen and Sanofi Genzyme Regenera for sponsoring today's episode. Go to arthritis.org slash liveyespodcast for episodes and show notes. And stay in touch 